Um, we are talking about four aspects of love. We know that there are more aspects than the ones that we're discussing in this passage. Paul actually lists like a whole list of what love looks like when you've been transformed by the love of God. In 1 Corinthians 13, he says it's, sel- it's selfless, it's patient, it's kind, it's not self-seeking. It keeps no record of wrongs. And I believe that John, the Apostle John, who'd been transformed from a son of thunder to the Apostle of love, would agree with that definition. But he highlights and kind of gets into, as he's written in the New Testament, a few aspects that, that manifest themselves from a heart that's been transformed like that. He says, look, when you have encountered and really been changed by the love of God truly, then you are called to love like Jesus loved you. Like, there's no way around it. Like, you are called to love others the way that God loved you. And it's distinct. It's eternal. It doesn't love in an earthly fashion like here. Here, we love with these limits and conditions. He goes, the love of God goes beyond all that. It's eternal. It's cosmic. It it transcends what this is limited by. And the sin that's evident in this world, the thing that's held us down. He says, in fact, it delivers us. The true love of God delivers us and brings us from a place of bitterness in a world like this and makes it sweet because of the work he did on the cross, how God fixed it all on a tree. And we looked at that last week, and and we even saw that prophecy painted beforehand as as a hope to the people of God as they walked with Moses in the Exodus. And they saw the water they could not drink made sweet so they could have life. And he says this, John today says, you know what, the heart that's been transformed is going to display acts of love in a specific way. And I'm glad that we sang the song we just did because it is impossible to display this kind of love without the help of the Father. There's just no way for us in our selfish tendencies, in our own natural state to love like this. The true love of God will always be displayed in generosity and in hospitality. And so today, John's going to highlight specifically those two things. And he says this, as he picks a contention, he picks a fight in this chapter of, first, of 3 John chapter 1. He, just, he goes at this church at Ephesus and he says, Hey, there are two people amongst you who are both being given leadership platforms. And I want you to understand, one of them is doing this right and one of them is doing this wrong. I want to commend the one in Gaius. I want to commend how he loves Because he loves like a man who's been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. He's someone like me who went from son of thunder to apostle love. And he looks different today than he once did. But I have to call out another guy who is amongst you who's been given influence, but he doesn't look like his life's been transformed whatsoever. His name's Diotrephes. And by the way, that's a really hard name, and I'm glad that that's not a common name today. I'm likely to mess that up at some point. Okay? So he condemns or he rebukes the example of Diotrephes, who I'm going to have to just call Big D at some point, you know, something, because it's just not going to come out right eventually. So let me jump right into 3 John chapter 1, the first six verses, and he's going to write to his friend Gaius, and he says this, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. Gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. So, dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for brothers and sisters, even though they're strangers to you. 
They have told the church about your love. Please send them on their way in a manner that honors God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. Verse 8, we ought therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. In that last two verses, I want to be really clear, highlight. He says, it was for the sake of the name that they went out. And he says, and then you were hospitable with them. So John is highlighting here a byproduct of a life that's been transformed is going to show generosity through the avenue of hospitality. And specifically for those who are sharing in the ministry of the gospel. He's saying, I, you have been taking such good care of people who are brothers and sisters in Jesus, but they're, they're foreigners to you. They're, they're strangers. And you just welcome them in and you've taken care of them. That is admirable. That's honorable. You need to continue doing that because you've been transformed by the gospel and that very message that they're carrying to offer hope to those who have yet to, you help offer respite and much needed respite when, when otherwise they may not come against it. So here's what he means by that. See, when people traveled in that day, traveling ministry is difficult, period. Even today, it's difficult. Let me just say that. But in their day, when someone traveled on journey, which we're going to look at towards the end of this passage Jesus highlighted in Luke 10. They would travel and often be robbed. They had to run the risk of being beaten, maybe even left for dead. There was The roads in this day and era were not safe. We also know that there weren't a lot of inns during this era. Yeah, that, that's evidenced in the story of Jesus that you've probably been really familiar with. We always look at it come Christmas and Advent and how Jesus' own parents sought refuge at an inn, but there was no vacancy, so they had to bring the Savior of the world into the world in a stable. But if you understood that an inn during this day was really different than what we're used to, what we know, and what we would quantify as an inn in our mind today, you might feel better that he was born in that manger than, than you would in, a, in an inn anyways. You see, these are not these beautiful bed and breakfasts that are like some novelty boutique. And these are not even your run-of-the-mill Motel 6s that they just happen to be able to stop alongside because there happened to be more than one in a village. None of that existed. Not only were inns rare, they were little more than rodent-infested brothels run by crooked owners who were seeking to get ahead by just uh, charging more than they needed to to make a buck. So I need you to understand, like, the Savior of the world brought into the world through a brothel is probably not even as pretty a picture as the stable. Hello? And so he, here, the inn was not really reputable, wasn't even that available in this area or in this era. The safest place for people to stay during this time was in another person's house. The safest place specifically for a Christian to stay during this time was another Christian's house because they were few and far between. There weren't a lot of them. This was still new. It was being birthed. And so the hospitality and the refuge that, that Gaius has offered these people who are traveling and sharing the truth, these disciples who have taken the gospel, it's transformed their lives, and they're traveling all over under the, the, the direction of the gospel and the direction of God, are battling all the stuff I just mentioned. They're battling the road. They're battling not finding places to sleep. They're battling uh, people coming against them. They're battling spiritual warfare and the weariness that comes from that. They're battling physical persecution. They're battling the simple strains of a traveling ministry, period. And so Gaius offers respite for these people, and John says, 
Man, that is evidence of a life that's been transformed. And so John is saying this. He says the gospel is the key to that transformation. He says without it, no one truly loves apart from the love of God and that true love changing them. That, it's, it's evidence in the way that you responded to those people who are trying to give the gospel away. Because nobody who has not been transformed by the gospel, would respond in this way. He actually points out, he says, they got no help from the pagans. That's the way the, the world is seen by God. It's either children of God or a child of wrath, child of God or pagan. And so he says, those who don't know him, they got no help. And he's going to speak of a pagan in a moment. He says, the gospel changes us. And thus, it changed John it changed Gaius, and now Gaius is supporting those traveling and generously sharing the gospel with folks who have yet to experience that change. But will, once they hear the hope from the people that he's given refuge to, have opportunity to turn and repent from their ways. And so I want you to write this down. This is really important. John, Paul, Gaius, they've all been changed. They've all been transformed. And they're saying right here, that we have to be about transformational relationships over transactional ones. We have to be over about transformational relationships, those that change us from the inside out and not just transactional ones. Transactional relationships always seek to take. Either you take or you get taken from. But how many of you in, in this world have experienced the hurt of transactional relationships? Show of hands quickly. Okay, so he's saying more than a transactional relationship, those who have been transformed by the gospel, and it's only evidenced by a love that truly changes someone in heart and mind from the inside out, have to be about transformational relationship. He goes on in this passage to rebuke a brother who is in this church. His name is Diotrephes, and he says that this person was not hospitable. Thus, he can't see the love of God being manifest through this hospitality. He doesn't know he's actually truly a brother. He's calling him a pagan here. He says, because this person ultimately seeks his own needs first. So what, what John does here, and I want to I say this as a side. John was known as a son of thunder, someone who's thin-skinned, would fight at the drop of a hat, and someone who sought self-preservation and would fight for himself. He had such a reputation for doing this that he would, he would bolster a thunderous tone as he did so. How many of you know Romans 8 says God uses all things for the glory of those who are called according to his purposes? How many of you are grateful that God would call the son of thunder to become apostle of love, one of the most compassionate? But also, in his love, would fight for the truth and could say things in a thunderous tone because his heart had been transformed by the gospel and driven by that now that he could pick a fight with the leaders of this church. He could actually start to contend and people knew it was coming from the right place. And he did so in a thunderous tone because God even used who he was in his old life to make him effective in his new life. God put something in him before the foundation of the world that only God knew. Now, in his old life, he only knew to use that for himself, so that's what he did. But when his heart was transformed, that boldness came out and he fought for what was right. I need you to write that down. That's important. Because too often, church, we are weak and we don't fight for what's right to keep the status quo. And so he picks a fight and goes into conflict. In 3 John chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, he says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. 
So when I come, I will call attention to what he's doing. I'm going to pick that fight. I'm going to call that out. Spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. So he's calling what Diotrephes is doing is evil. So John draws this real contrast between Gaius and Diotrephes. And he highlights that what Gaius is doing is the proper and appropriate response for someone who's been transformed by the gospel. This is how a disciple responds, but Diotrephes responds in a way that would be pagan. It's not of the gospel. So he's saying, you want to know what to do? You want to know what not to do? Here it is. He says right here, first of all, be generous to those who share the gospel, those who promote transformational life, those who are hospitable because they're seeking to generously help those who are, kingdom, who are seeking the advance of the kingdom in the gospel, showing their love for others with hospitality. To the contrary, he goes, look at diatrephes. He goes, you, these things, he says, avoid all of them. Number one, avoid seeking self. He wants to be first, so avoid that. That's your old nature. Don't do that anymore. He goes, seek to avoid being dismissive. Don't just allow this stuff to go on. Fight for what's right. He goes, don't be malicious. Don't, don't have an evil tone underneath that seeks self and wants to transact in relationships, be transformed. Don't lie about it. Number four, don't make up some excuse that sounds good, religiously justified your selfish actions. And he says, stop encouraging others from not being hospitable. Don't train other people like Diotrephes has given example. Train them to be like Gaius, not like Diotrephes. And I'm looking at this couple who just dedicated their children today. Here's what I'm saying. He's saying, you have an opportunity. You made a commitment and a covenant to train your child up in the way that they would go, in the way of Jesus. And he's saying, Gaius has given an example of that. Diotrephes has not. How many of you have relationships in your extended family that are dysfunctional? It's Thanksgiving, folks. It's okay to be honest now. In a few days, you're going to be around them. How many of you got a cousin Eddie? Okay. And if you didn't raise your hand, guess who you are? <laughs> if you don't know, you're him. Someone who's just going to, every time, okay? There is dysfunction on display in our homes, specifically the, the extended family all the time, because we're not around them all the time, but when we get together like this, we have these weird conversations like, what's everyone thankful for before we eat, and let's give gifts, okay? We don't do that all the time, so it seems awkward. And when we get together, we let Cousin Eddie go off because we don't see Cousin Eddie all the time, and we're just kind of getting through it. Let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus died so that you could just get through it? When he said, I came to give life and give it more abundantly. I didn't come that you'd be stolen from, that you'd be killed, you'd be destroyed, have no hope of true intimacy as a family. What I came for was the opposite. But see, here's the thing, folks, and I need you to write this down. We continue to experience dysfunctional relationships, even with extended family, because we're more concerned about peacekeeping than we are peacemaking. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, not peacekeepers. We all have it happen. It all rises up within us. Cousin Eddie pulls the pin, throws the bomb, and we go, okay, like, I know we're all feeling that. We want to say something, but let's just not say anything. Let's just get through it, and we'll all go home, right? Raise your hand if you've done that once in your life. All of us have done that. And everyone walks away going, what just happened? Here's the thing to those who just dedicated your children. Please, please do not train your children just to peacekeep. And allow that dysfunction to continue for generation after generation. And that sin just continues to get passed. Because we were not willing to fight for what was right. That's what John is saying. Don't be like Diotrephes and just sidestep it and let it continue. That's not even a true brother. He's a pagan. He's acting like someone who's solely in transactional relationship. Someone who's getting what he wants and getting and taking what he needs. But he's not willing to act as if he's been transformed. Gaius is willing to be hospitable to people and he's willing to get in there. Hello? He's willing to open his home to people who are complete strangers because he knows the hope that they carry with them. And if someone could just hear those pagans, like, like Diotrephes, could just hear the truth, then they might have hope. And Jesus gives example of that. He says, he says uh, in Luke 10, I want to go, go to this. Luke 10, verse 25 to 37. It says in 25, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What was written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, you've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So, Jesus, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So listen to this. Jesus gives an example using an in. He says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was traveling. When he did, he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, another priest, even a higher priest, came alongside, saw him, and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, took pity upon him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine upon them. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn to take care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, said, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense. Jesus asked, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? Which was commonplace. In their day, the expert of law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan because they hated Samaritans. Worse than they hated Gentiles. This is, this is the worst picture. And he says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus says, go and be like the Samaritan. Go and do likewise. Now, this religious leader was one of the priests. This religious leader could have been one of the Levite priests. And he says, you go and be like the Samaritan. Don't just sidestep it. Don't just pass by and let that man die. Don't do that. Get in there. A few questions naturally arise for me within this passage and in this peril, given the setting in which Jesus was asking it. Number one, what would this priest and Levite say if one of their own 
disciples was with them as they passed by this man who's been left to die. Because see, all these rabbis and these priests had disciples of their own. They, this was commonplace. They had people that would leave everything they knew to follow and live with their rabbi to learn their ways and to learn everything about how they ministered. What would their explanation be? If they sidestepped this man who was dying, the act already seems self-seeking and dismissive. The very things that John is telling us to avoid. But would their response to the one who follows them to take their job one day, their own disciple, the one they're training, would their response be to them a lie? Well, obviously we didn't want to put ourselves in harm's way. We didn't want to, with that bloodied individual who probably deserved that, like we didn't want to put ourselves in harm's way, contact a disease. You know, um, would they maliciously slander the Samaritan who did come alongside? And when the, when the disciple sees that, they see that, that their rabbi, their leader, has walked past like diatrephes, but the Samaritan could not help himself, went and helped. Would they go, but hey, uh, teacher, why, why did we walk by but the Samaritan, who's, you know, the worst, help that man? Would they slanderously speak against them, training these men to be dismissive as well, training them to lie, to be malicious, to just keep the peace and sidestep the issue and not get in there? Would they discourage future priests who were supposed to be the intercessors between God and man from being hospitable as well? Another question exists, and that is this. Why would Jesus use a Samaritan as an example? Why was the Samaritan so caring, tending to the wounds of this man? Hospitable, paying for his stay himself. Why would he likely use an example where an innkeeper, which they knew had a terrible reputation that day, they were crooked. Why would he say this Samaritan gave him a, a rich pay, two denarii, and he said, I'll give you even more if this doesn't cover it to someone who's likely to just be transactional and use this as an opportunity for wealth, leverage this opportunity. Why would he say all of this? I don't know. Other than he lived this very thing. He stepped out of heaven to come help those who could not help themselves. He spent his life calling disciples who were uneducated and unworthy. He spent his life amongst those who no others would never spend time with. The lepers, the blind, the deaf. And he not only spent time with them, he touched them. And then he says, And for those of you who expect to be the religiously elite, let me show you the compassion of a Samaritan who you hate. And lastly, for us this morning, church, why does Jesus put no description or discrimination on who our neighbor is? This was a Jew traveling, obviously wealthy because he would have had no other reason to be attacked and left for dead by robbers from Jerusalem to Jericho if he wasn't a mark. And then the Samaritan, who they'd been taught was the lowest of the low, was the one that Jesus said, I need you to act like him. I need you to act like Gaius, John says. Because if your life has been transformed from apost to apostle of love from a diatrophies, from selfishness, if it's been transformed from a son of thunder, 
then your life should be about transformational relationships, offering that hope to everyone else. You should be willing to get in there and resolve the conflicts that exist within your own home, with your own work, within your own family. You should be willing to get in there. You know, people ask me all the time, what makes a leader? Let me tell you, it's very clear. Any leader in this room is going to agree with this definition. Here it is. Leading is nothing more than conflict resolution. And every leader knows that. It's hard, it's messy, but you know who's ready and mature enough to lead? Those who are willing to resolve conflict. And not just sidestep it and try to keep the peace. They're going to make peace. Jesus gives this amazing story of compassion and faith of the Samaritan. Because this Samaritan was far more concerned about his fallen and uh, surely needy, the one who was going to die. If he was left alone there on the road, then he was concerned about himself. He was more concerned about making peace for this man, tending to him, caring for him compassionately, loving him the way that Jesus would, than he was what others thought of him or what he might contract or, or just sidestepping the issue to keep the peace and acting like he didn't see him. He, of all people, had the ability to sidestep it. Why? Because Jews had no dealing with the Samaritans. They hated each other, sworn enemies. But he didn't serve so that others would notice. And he didn't serve so they could Instagram it. He simply got in there and he made peace. Because he was compelled by the love that had transformed him to help someone who couldn't help themselves. He cared for someone like he hoped someone would care for him if he himself had been jumped Robbed and left for dead. What does that sound like? The second greatest commandment was what? We love others the way that what? We'd want to be loved. So what do we do? Jesus says this. Look at this example and do likewise. John commends the love of Gaius and he condemns the false peace that's created by diatrephes. The false peace that's created by anyone who's simply willing to keep the peace instead of making peace. It's not real. It's a byproduct of a broken world. So this morning as the band is coming back. And we consider these words in this example. Here's the truth. The beauty is that in the grace of Jesus, you and I have both likely been in this situation at one point in our lives. We've probably both helped in a moment when we weren't sure what to do. Someone needed us more than we needed to reflect on ourselves. We've probably helped in that moment, but we've also, if we're honest, we've probably sidestepped when we could have helped at other moments. And here's the thing. He highlights that a love that's been, and a life that's been transformed by Jesus will always seek to get in there. So this morning, Father, as your church, we come to you and we pray that you would help us to notice the, the example of the Samaritan the Good Samaritan, the examples of Gaius, the examples of John, the example of Jesus. And Father, this morning, as your church, would, be we, would we be willing to be transformed because you've already saved us? Would we be willing to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers? Would we be willing, God, to be about transformational relationships, not simply transactional ones? I pray right now that we would run to the Father. You do a work in our heart and minds right now in this room. 
And we'd remember it's where you were responding to and no one else. In Jesus' name.